pastors here, and we're glad that you chose to join us this morning. To all the, the visitors who are checking us out or uh, came with family or friends uh, this morning, we want to welcome you. Those who are checking us out online, uh, welcome. Uh, thanks for, for joining us this morning. As a church right now, we're, we're preaching through a New Testament book called 2 Corinthians. It's a book written by the Apostle Paul, if you know of him at all. So this is written after Jesus' life and death and resurrection. Uh, churches are being started. They're being planted all over the ancient world. And, and this guy named Paul, he's writing back to one of the churches, helping answer some of the questions that they have, helping them take the gospel, the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension and reign, helping them uh, understand how that impacts and affects their lives. And so this morning we're looking at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 21. If you want, you can flip uh, in your Bibles to uh, those verses. And the title of today's sermon is Our Need for and the Effect of the Atonement. And if you think that's confusing and long uh, title, it is. My uh, original title was way longer than that. So uh, we're just going to get into the passage. But what we're we're going to talk about today is the atonement, this uh, doctrine that Jesus died in our place to save us from our sins. And now through that, we can no longer be separated and our, our relationship broken from our Creator, but we can be reconciled. To him. So we're going to look at how, in, in our passage today, how we have a need for that atonement and then the effects that, that immediately happen and then naturally flow out of that atonement. But before we get to our passage today, let me tell you about one of my favorite places on earth. It's a, a, a Brazilian steakhouse called Fogo de, I think show is how you pronounce it. I don't speak Portuguese. Everyone says Fogo de Chao, but you speak Portuguese, it's a, a little bit different. But anyway, this place has so much unbe- unbelievable food. So if you don't know about this restaurant, you have these little like coasters. One side's green, one side's red. You flip it to green, and they just keep bringing you more and more and more and more food. And it is unbelievably good. Um, and even if you're not, even if you uh, you know if you're a vegetarian, don't eat meat. Their salad bar is unbelievable. Their cheesy bread is unbelievable. And when you leave, you feel like it was impossible to try all the food that they had. And that's pretty much going to be our passage today in a lot of ways. We're going to spend a whole sermon on this. We probably could spend a whole sermon on every single verse in our passage here today. And there's just so much theological meat here uh, in 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 21, that we're probably going to end today's sermon like uh, we would end a meal at Fogo, feeling like... Uh, there's just so much more that we could take in. And we're going we're gonna to leave wishing we could have tried, tasted, and eaten more, yet our stomachs will be aching with deep theological goodness. I hope. So that's our, that's our plan today. Hopefully we'll end today uh, reading and studying today's passage with a gospel, co- uh, gospel food coma. All right. So let's read our passage here today. It'll be up there on the screen if you want to follow along. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 21. Craig, would you mind clicking through these slides as I read? Thank you. Uh, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God. And I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearances and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. 
For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but live for him uh, who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Great passage. But even, even before we jump into our passage, begin to unpack some of the huge, important doctrines in this passage. I want to ask a question that our uh, text today answers. And the question is, uh, why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus die? This is a question that both Christians and non-Christians ask. Why did Jesus die? Some argue that Jesus didn't die on purpose, but rather he was just uh, the pawn of the ruling powers of that day. That he didn't really die because he wanted to, but because what he was doing was threatening the Roman power and rule. And what does Rome do to those who threaten their power, power and rule? They, they execute them. So some argue that. Others argue that Jesus died as an example for us. That even though he was fully God, he chose to die at the hands of weak, infinite humans that he created in order to show us the greatest example of turning the other cheek. Or to show us the ultimate example of love by, by uh, dying for and loving his enemies. Other people argue that the, the reason Jesus died was in order to defeat Satan. And that through Jesus' death in our place, our great enemy was destroyed and his power over us and the, the, the chains of death were also destroyed. And the fancy theological word for number three here is, is Christus Victor or uh, this idea that Christ had victory over Satan and death. That's what happened at the cross. And then our others argue that Jesus died in our place to save us from the penalty of sin, the, the, the punishment that we deserved because of our rebellion against God. And this view argues that Jesus was a substitute for us. He died in our place. We deserve death, but Jesus died the death that we deserved. He received the penalty that was due us because of our sin and rebellion, and he took that sin on to himself. So what's the answer to this question? Why, why did Jesus die? Well, first of all, if we read the Bible at all, uh, and we hear Jesus' words and hear Jesus' death described both before and after it actually historically happens or it happens in the narrative in the Gospels. We see that Jesus said that he would die. He said that no one takes away his uh, life, that he has the authority to lay it down and we see that he worked incredibly uh, hard to make sure he died, died a certain way, died at a certain time, died in a certain 
place. And the rest of the New Testament describes that this was Jesus' plan. So the, the, because of that, we can cross out the first um, answer to this question. Jesus did not die on accident. This was his plan. So what about these other three views? Did Jesus die to be an example for us? An example for how we should live and how we should love others? Did Jesus die to defeat our enemy of Satan and death? Or did Jesus die in our place for our sins? And the answer is a resounding yes. All three of these things are true. And even more. We could go on talk about even more reasons that Jesus died, Jesus died for us. Jesus' death is powerful and multifaceted and profound and comprehensive. The first two views of why Jesus died, that he died as an example for us, and he died to defeat evil, those are quite popular and, and easily accepted, both by culture and by the church, right? The culture likes the idea of Jesus being a loving, forgiving person. They like the idea of Jesus' death defeating evil, defeating bad things. Yet it is this third uh, view that Jesus died in our place for our sins as our substitute that is just harder for especially the world, but even for us as Christians sometimes to receive. Yet as we see in, Jesus, uh, in today's passage, Jesus came not just to be an example, not just to defeat Satan and death, but he also came to die by paying the penalty for our sin, dying in our place, that through all of that we can now be reconciled to our creator. So let's look at our passage today and see how it answers this question about why Jesus died. Let's look and see how the New Testament and 2 Corinthians describes the atonement, this fancy theological word that means uh, God, through Jesus Christ, is now reconciling humanity to him. That through God, sin has been removed and remedied now because of Jesus' death. So the first thing we're going to look at today is we're going to see that there is a need for atonement, that there is a need for forgiveness to happen. There's a need for, for humanity to be reconciled to God. And we're going to see why Christ died. Christ died in order for the atonement to happen, in order for forgiveness and reconciliation to happen. We read this today in our passage, starting in verse 18. Uh, we read that Christ reconciled us, Speaking, speaking about a church, speaking to Christians, Christ reconciled us to himself. And then later on in verse 19, because of what Christ did, uh, we, our, our, our trespasses, our sins, are no longer counted against us. So we had sin, our passage describes. We were guilty and we had a need. There was a need for reconciliation. If we were in perfect relationship with God, if we were okay Standing before our creator, there's no need for Christ to reconcile us to God. But rather, our reality is we have sins. We have trespassed. We have sinned against our God. Jesus died because without his death in our place, we were without hope. Jesus died because of his unthinkable love for humanity, for us, and because he knew what it would take for us to receive forgiveness. Jesus died for us because he is a good and perfect judge, a good judge, an impartial judge, a judge who is just, and when he sees evil, he knows it needs to be punished. 
Our passage today starts off by speaking about the fear of the Lord. And the verse right before today's passage that we read last week describes Jesus as a judge. That in the end, Jesus will come as a judge and he will justly judge all those who have done evil. He will give to each person what is due them because of their actions, whether good or evil. Verse 10 from last week said, For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due uh, for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. We say that we value justice, right? We say that we want justice. We, we, we march for justice. We stand up for justice. We post saying and demanding justice to be done. We donate money towards it. We stand up for justice. We say we value it. We want all evil to end and we want fairness and goodness to be our reality. So the truth that Jesus is a judge and that Jesus is a good and just and true and fair judge, that actually should be exactly what we say we want. A good, impartial, true judge, judging evil, should be what we say that we actually hope for. As a famous theologian, uh, Tupac famously said, only God can judge me. And he got it. And he, he was right, right? We will be judged by our creator and the cosmic king of, of all the universe. Yet it gets really personal and really real just as soon as our passage begins. It's not just theoretical or not just philosophical or, or theological. In verse 11, Paul begins his argument that even though it's good that Jesus is a just, divine judge it's unfavorable news for us because we're also guilty so when the evil and sin is outside of us we, we cheer we want justice we want evil to be punished but then we realize that the mirror gets turned and that there's also evil inside of us that we are also guilty we are trespassers as our passage said today we are traitors against our creator and because of this we should, fear the peer, we should fear the punishment that we're going to receive because of our sins as we stand before an impartial good judge. And because of all of this, Paul works tirelessly to persuade people to believe in the gospel, to trust in the gospel for the forgiveness of their sins because apart from that, we stand guilty. And some of you might be thinking, yeah, but I'm, I'm actually not that bad of a person. Okay, and, and, and that's true. Of course, probably everyone in this room is not the most evil person that we know, right? Probably everyone in this room has, you know, a huge list of people that would fall behind them uh, if we were ranked on how good we are. And maybe if we did uh, grade on a curve, we would be better than most of the people in our lives. Even if that's true, though, we're still guilty, right? Even if we're better than most, even uh, one of the best, we still are guilty. We've still sinned against our maker and king countless times. Think about how, how just law works in real life. Think about, let's say you live to 70 years old, and every single day of your life, you are not a thief. Every single day of your life. So if you're 70 years old, that's 25,000 days of your life. But if in just one of those days, you break into someone's house and rob them, you are still guilty, right? Even if one of the 25,000 days of your life, 
you're a thief, and the other 24,999, you're not a thief. Even if your life is 0.0004% a thief, you've still broken the law, right? You're still guilty. And so the argument that I'm really not that bad doesn't hold water. Even if you're not as bad as others, the point is we are still uh, guilty of sin. We are all guilty of trespassing against our creator and king, our passage reminds us of. So back to verse uh, 19 again. It teaches that, we're, that, that everyone, that the entire world has sinned against God. It's not just your guilty problem or my problem about being guilty in my sin. It's the world's problem. It's all of humanity. So why did Jesus die? It was our sin, humanity's rebellion, that led Jesus to the cross. Verse 15 tells us that Jesus died for our sake. He died for us. He died for you. He died for me. He didn't just die as an example. He didn't just die to defeat evil, but he died for you. This is personal. He looked at you, and he loved you, and he chose to die for you, for me, for us. Jesus substituted himself in our place. He took the penalty that was due us as guilty people, and it was for our sake that he died. And it is because of our sin that we broke our perfect relationship with our creator and God. We're the guilty party. We're the ones who have rebelled. We were the traitors against our king. And because of that, we need atonement. We need forgiveness. We need reconciliation. Christ doesn't need to die for our reconciliation if we're already good with him. Right? This verse makes no sense. Christ does not need to die to reconcile us back to God if we're already good with God. But our triune God in eternity past knew that this is what humanity was going to do. Knew about our need 2,000 years ago and knew about each one of our needs right here today and made a plan to send his son to bring us back together with him through his very own death. And over and over again, in just these 10 verses, we see that although Jesus, he did give us an example how to, how to love on the greatest, the greatest way. He did uh, give us an example of how to live morally. And he did defeat Satan and death. As, as Ellen read this morning, Jesus came to defeat the powers of evil and defeat the kingdom of evil. Yes, Jesus did do that. But the problem of humanity wasn't only that we needed a better example. The problem humanity has isn't that we only have an actual enemy in the devil. But, yes to all those, but we also need to clearly see that our biggest problem was sin. We needed someone to deal with our sin. So why did Jesus die? Because we, because you, because me, because we needed a savior. Jesus died because we needed a justifier. We needed some way to have our sins forgiven and our punishment absolved and our hearts remade and our guilt changed to innocence and our conflict with God ended and our rebellion pardoned and our shame removed and our treacherous actions forgotten and our separation from our divine maker and God removed. In a word, Jesus died because we needed atonement. We needed 
reconciliation. We needed a sinless someone to willingly take our punishment on himself and die in our place. And Jesus did that. He did that for you because of his great love for you. And because of that, uh, because of that reconciliation, because of the atonement for those who trust in Jesus, this changes our whole lives. This tweet uh, from Karen Swallow, Swallow Pryor was floating around the internet this week. And it unpacks what reconciliation to God means. Religion says, I messed up. My dad is going to kill me. But the gospel says, I messed up. I need to call my dad. With regards to, to, to religion or, or just think about our lives apart from Christ, our reality is that we have messed up. We are guilty. We have sinned. We have rebelled. And we're deserving of death. But the reality of the gospel is that through faith in Jesus, we are now reconciled to God. Our faith is restored. So when we do mess up, Christian, when you do mess up, we should not be worried about punishment. We should not be worried about penalty or disdain or disappointment or death from our God. But since we are already reconciled to God through Jesus' atoning work on the cross, when we do mess up, we do the second thing. We go to God. We go to our Father because we know we have a perfect relationship with him. We know he offers forgiveness. We know he loves us. We don't need to run from him, Christian, when we mess up. We run to him. I am an imperfect father. Uh, ask my kids, ask my wife, ask anyone who sees. I, I am definitely not a perfect father, yet we had a really great uh, example of this play out in our family this weekend. My daughter drawing with her new crayons that she got for her birthday, went off the paper, colored on Amy's uh, tablecloth, and what did she do? She messed up. But she came to me. She came to me right away, and she apologized. She said, Dad, I drew on Mom's uh, tablecloth. Because she knew that her and I were good, because she knew I would always forgive her, because she knew that, that, that I loved her with an unchangeable love, when my daughter messed up, what did she do? She didn't run. She didn't hide. She didn't fear penalty or banishment. She came to me because she knew she was secure. She knew she was reconciled. She knew she was good with me. And that, that is the reality of the atonement for those of us who are in Christ, for those who have put our full trust in Jesus alone. That is our reality. This is what we should be doing. This is what should our natural response be. And just like my daughter came to me and, and did apologize, did confess, but not wondering, you know, will dad kick me out of the family? Will dad not forgive me? Will he banish me? Will he kill me? Right? She came and, and, and apologized, repented because she knew she was secure, because she knew the answer to that question of asking for forgiveness. Or think about it this way. Jesus' work on the cross can't just be, can't only be Jesus died as an example for you. Because if that is true, we're still stuck in, in religion up here. If Jesus only was an example for us, then we're going to fall short of that example, we're going to mess up, and are, we're still uh, deserving of death. Or if Je Jesus only came to defeat Satan, 
and to defeat evil, and that's it, we're still stuck in that top one because our sin problem isn't dealt with. But thanks be to God, he didn't come only as an example or only as a Satan defeater, which he did, but he also came as a reconciler. He came to bring atonement and forgiveness. St. Corinthians continues now. The atonement, the good news continues here in our passage. Jesus' death in our place for our sins has effects. Right? We talked about the atonement, what it, do, what it is, and now we're going to talk about what it does, its effects. The atonement has effects, immediate effects, that happen immediately when someone repents and believes, and it has continual effects. Let's first look at the immediate effects of the atonement. New creation through faith in Christ. Verse 17 said, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, therefore, if anyone puts their trust in Jesus, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all of this is from God. So the old self, the old person that was enslaved to sin, the old person that was destined for death, the old person whose identity was, was rebel and traitor and enemy, dies. And a new person is created. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And this idea comes up all over the New Testament in Jesus' ministry and in the New Testament that follows, right? Think of maybe, uh, if, if you know the story, Jesus meets with Nicodemus, one of the religious Jewish rulers, and he tells Nicodemus, if you want to uh, enter into the kingdom of God, if you want to be reconciled to God, if you want to be saved, you have to be born a second time. You have to be born again. The old you has to die, and a new thing has to be reborn. Or think about baptism. And in baptism, we see symbolically the old person dying, right? That's why we put people under water. When you are baptized and you go underwater, it symbolizes the old person is dead. And when we come up out of the water, it symbolizes we are raised with Christ. A new creation has come. A person is reborn. So how does this happen? You might be asking. You've, this passage hits so much on that we need reconciliation. How does this actually happen? How does, uh, how does a guilty, sinful trespasser, how does that person become something new? What is going on? What's going on behind the scenes, you might ask. Verse 21 helps us understand how the atonement works, how new creation comes about. Verse 21 says, For our sake, God made him, God made Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. So Jesus, who was sinless, who was perfect, who was righteous, who was holy, for our sake, God made him to be sin, even though he knew no sin, so that in him, so that in Christ, we might become something different. We might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was sinless, yet... He took our sin, all future sins, all past sins, all of our sins, he took them on himself. And he graciously, at the same time, gifted us his sinlessness. He gifted us his perfection, his righteousness, his purity. Theologically, we call this the great exchange. On the cross, Jesus took your sin, your history, your past, your brokenness, everything wrong and evil and broken about you. He took that onto himself. 
And at the very same time, he gave you his perfection. Reformer Martin Luther describes it this way. He says, That is the mystery which is rich in divine grace to sinners, to you and me. Wherein by a wonderful exchange, our sins are no longer ours, but Christ's. And the righteousness of Christ, not Christ's, but ours. He has emptied himself of his righteousness that he might clothe us with it and fill us with it. And he has taken our evils upon himself that he might deliver us from them. So let's make this real. Let's make this really real. Like th- let's make this meaningful and practical and personal. Because many of us have heard this, this same sermon, the same passage, the same doctrine many times. But let's make it real here. Jesus didn't just take your white lies, your one act of selfishness, that one time you were a bit arrogant unto himself. That's not what the cross is about, or not just about. But right now, I want you to think of your past sins. Think of your worst sins right now. Think of uh, the ones that keep you up at night, the ones you can't forget. The sins that have brought you spiritual PTSD. The sins that fill you with shame and guilt. The ones that no one knows about because you're too embarrassed to share or too full of shame. The sins that you just can't stop remembering because either you're too uh, terrified of them or maybe you keep thinking about them because of the lure and temptation of wanting to do them again. Think about the ways that maybe you betrayed someone that you loved. Or the lies that you spread that destroyed their lives or someone's uh, relationship. Think about the, the, the violence you have committed against someone else. About the racism that plagues your heart. Maybe about the abortion that you had. Or the actions that you've done that if someone caught you, you'd even be put in jail. The double life maybe that you have been living. The all-consuming pride in your heart that makes you hate and despise others that are different than you. Those are the sins that Jesus also died for. Jesus doesn't just die for our little sins. He doesn't just die for pretty good people that have just a tiny bit of rebellion in their life. But the worst of the worst of sins and for the greatest of sinners, Jesus died. He took all of our sin on to himself. He bore the punishment that you and me deserved. And at the same time, He gives us new identities. At the same time, he calls us new creations. At the same time, he gifts us the opposite. He gifts us his perfection, his purity, his innocence, his holiness, his righteousness, and even his life. And in all of this, he makes us new people. He makes you a new person. He calls you a new creation. You are not who you were. You are not what you've done. You are a new creation. The old is gone. He declares over your life. And it is out of this new identity, because we are new creations, because we have been reborn and recreated, because we're no longer at odds with our creator, but now reconciled to our creator, we now naturally will have fruit in our lives. Because of the atonement, our new lives are filled 
with something new. Our new lives are filled with what our passage today calls the ministry of reconciliation. So something happens immediately when you put your trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. A new creation you become. Immediately something changes. You go from being against God to received by God. You go from being at odds with him and a traitor against him to being reconciled with him. But there is more than just an immediate fruit. There's continual fruit that will naturally come out of that. And in our passage today, it's called the the ministry of reconciliation. So what we do now in our new identities, just like a butterfly lives differently, naturally, than it did as a caterpillar. Just like a frog lives completely differently because it's a new creation, because it's not a tadpole anymore. We too, in our new identity as new creations, live out in new ways. As the gospel changes us, as the spirit fills us and motivates us and empowers us, the root of our salvation will now grow fruit, the fruit of declaring and demonstrating the gospel. In our passage today, we see that uh, out, of the, out of the atonement, then now, we receive this ministry of reconciliation. Right at the end of verse 19, it says, God entrusts his people, entrusts Christians, and entrusts you and I with this message. This message that forgiveness, atonement, reconciliation is possible. So the continual fruit out of the atonement in the life of the Christian is the ministry serving people by telling them about this reconciliation. God, through Jesus Christ, is doing the work of restoring and healing relationships between him and those who were against him. That message here called the message or the message or the, the ministry of reconciliation is what Christians now declare and demonstrate to themselves, to the church, and to the world. Everyone who will now listen. So now through the Spirit's leading, through the Spirit's power, he uses us to bring this gospel to the world. Real quick aside here, look at what this uh, ministry of reconciliation, look, look at how it's described. Just quickly reread those two verses in your mind. The, the ministry of reconciliation here in Second in, uh, Corinthians is speaking about vertical reconciliation, right? All over here, it's talking about us being reconciled with God, us being our relationship fixed with God, Right? And of course, other types of reconciliation are great and important. We should care about them. Those should be in our lives. Racial reconciliation, reconciliation between nations, reconciliation between uh, enemies, interpersonal reconciliation. Of course, that is important. That should fill our lives as Christians, as a fruit of what first happened. We can, so just to be clear, this ministry of reconciliation is not first Go and reconcile with the person that's been evil to you. Go and reconcile with, a, an, a, a, with an, an ethnicity that's different than yours. Go forgive someone who has wronged you. It's not first that. But if we read here, the ministry of reconciliation is tell people they can first be reconciled to their God. And then out of that, only because of that, can we then forgive and reconcile with others. Both are important. But even more important is the order. First, we must be reconciled to our God and creator. So, Paul continues 
Actually, going back to our very first verse in our passage today, Paul says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. We've been given this ministry of telling people about how reconciliation is possible. And so we proclaim it in word and in deed, especially in words. Each Christian is now given both the honor and the high calling of telling people about the gospel, telling people that this forgiveness is possible, telling people that a new identity can happen, that new creation is possible in their life, that they can be made pure, that they can be declared innocent, that they can have a new start, and that they can be reconciled to God. So we persuade others, Paul says, and we're even called ambassadors for Christ. Verse 20 said, therefore, Christian, we are ambassadors for Christ. We are representatives of Christ to this world. God is now going to not use angels, not use dreams, not write it in the sky, not show up in person and say, world, this is the gospel. Believe it. God's not choosing to do that. What is he choosing to do? He's choosing to use you. He's choosing to use me, Hiawatha Church, other churches, as his ambassadors. Church, we are ambassadors. We are representatives for Christ, and God is choosing to make his appeal through us to the world. God making his appeal through us. We implore you. We implore each other. We implore the world on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to him. It's possible. Receive forgiveness. Repent and believe. Stop trying to earn your forgiveness. Stop trying to be good enough. Stop trying to cover up everything you've done. But we implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And if all this, you know, some of, it, some of you, this might really excite you. This might light a fire in you that God wants to use you to spread the gospel to the world, to your neighbors, to your friends, to the church, to the unevangelized, to the nations. For others of you, you might still, even though you know God's the one that's doing it, even though you see why we should want to persuade people, you've experienced it yourself, you might be a bit apprehensive or you might be uh, this might feel like a burden. And if that's you, if this does feel like a burden that you've been given a message to share with the world, remember the whole past 30 minutes of this sermon and our passage. Remember that the great exchange, that's a gift from God. He does that all. Remember becoming new creations? God does all of that himself, not us. Remember us being reconciled? God did that as well, not you. Remember that verse 17 ends with, all this is from God. So as ambassadors, whether you're uh, nervous about that or excited about that, we appeal to others. We implore others to be reconciled together. We implore others to repent of their sin and turn from their trespasses and to fear the Lord and realize that there is an eternity and that they have sinned against their creator. Appeal to others we do as a church, reminding them of the gospel, that we now have hope through Jesus Christ, that new life is possible, life now and life eternal. And as we declare with both words and uh, both uh, individually and corporately, we remind them that for our sake, for your sake, for, for my sake, for our sake, for the world's 
sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So through the atonement, we see that we have this continual fruit. We have this ministry of reconciliation. As new creations, the Spirit will change our hearts and use us and empower us to do this, to declare the gospel and to persuade and to implore people. But 2 Corinthians 5 also gives us the why behind this fruit. Why do we do this? Why, why do we naturally want to do this? Why do we change? What is the power and the motivation for this fruit, this fruit of the ministry of reconciliation being in our lives? The why is because this has first happened to us. We live out of this new identity as new creations. Apart from this new identity, we don't have any motivation. We don't have any power to want to share the gospel, to be ambassadors for Christ, to declare and spread this message of reconciliation. Verse 14 says, For the love of Christ controls us. It empowers us. The love of Christ compels us. Not the law, not rules, not obligations, not duty, not just to get a reward, but love. Christ first loving us is what compels us, is what controls us, is what burns in our soul and that makes us want to share the gospel. The love of Christ controls us, verse 14 says. Verse 15 reminds us that we, we don't live for ourselves anymore now as Christians, but because Jesus died for our sake. When we remember that, when we remember Jesus loves me, put your name in there. Jesus loves me so much that he died for me, for my sake. That changes us. It changes us. No longer is it just a nice story or a theory or some doctrine or wishful thinking, but it's, it becomes personal. It becomes our story. It becomes our history. It becomes a love story. The fruit of our salvation, the fruit of the atonement being effectual in our lives is that we'll now be ministers of reconciliation. We're compelled and empowered to declare and demonstrate the message of reconciliation. We, church, we, Christian, if you're a Christian here in this room, we get to warn people that this life is not the end that eternity is long, that judgment comes after death, and that Jesus taught that we should fear not just people that could kill the body, but we should fear God who can judge and kill the soul eternally in hell. We get to tell them that that doesn't have to be their future, that through repentance and belief, they can move from guilty to innocent. We get to appeal to people that by trusting in Jesus and not ourselves, we can move from sinful to righteous, as Jesus joyfully takes all of our past, all of our sin, all of our rebellion on himself and gifts us his innocence, clothes us with his holiness, his perfection, his righteousness. The ministry and the message of reconciliation brings good news to the world. And this is what we tell them. We say, for those of you who have shame, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about the gospel. You have shame, but now through the gospel, that shame can turn to purity. That shame can change to a new identity. You don't have to be that old person anymore. For those who are crippled by guilt, 
guilt because they're guilty. Not, not just shame because they feel bad about themselves or something's been done to them, but guilt because they are guilty. For those we say, innocence and pardon are offered to you. You know you're guilty. You're crushed by your guilt, but that doesn't have to be your reality anymore. Innocence and pardon can be yours through trust in Jesus. For those who are crippled by fear, fear of their past, fear of judgment, fear of an almighty God, fear of being known, the, the ministry of reconciliation tells them, you can have reconciliation. You don't have to fear the all-powerful God of the universe. You don't have to fear your creator. Reconciliation is possible. Hope can now be your new reality. And for those who fear judgment, who know what they deserve, we tell them forgiveness is possible. Forgiveness is possible. True forgiveness that you don't have to earn, that is just gifted to you. Reconciliation that is graciously given. So we tell the old man, the old woman, that new creation is possible. That through trust in Jesus, you can be someone completely new. You can die to your old self and you can be raised with Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for that good news, that good news that we so desperately, desperately need, that you love us to death and back, that forgiveness and the change in identity, reconciliation is offered. It's offered and given. We can buy it without money. We can receive it for no cost. So help us to believe that. And then out of that new heart, God, out of becoming new creations, change us. And, and thank you that you give us this ministry of reconciliation. You give us this message to share with each other, with ourselves again and again, and with the world. So Spirit, change us. Empower us. Give us motivation to do this. And we pray that uh, even in these times, these really hard times we live in now where it seems almost impossible not to only think about ourselves as we are afraid, as we're, as we're uh, fearful of the future, as everything seems uncertain, as we're sick, as we're surrounded by disease and death, as all of our plans and hopes seem to be getting crushed. In these hard times, Jesus, give us this hope, this, this eternal hope that cannot be taken from us, this new identity that will last forever and help us to think about others because of what's first happened to us. Help us to be a, a people that are entrusted with this great ministry, this great message, and share it with the world. In Jesus' name, amen.